You're listening to the Weekly Sermon Podcast from Trinity Church Denver. To find out more about Trinity, visit our website, trinitychurchdenver.org. Isaiah chapter 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. To comfort all who mourn. To grant to those who mourn in Zion. To give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes. The oil of gladness instead of mourning. The garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. That they may be called oaks of righteousness. The planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. They shall build up the, the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers, but you shall be called the priests of the Lord. They shall speak of you as the ministers of our God. You shall eat the wealth of the nations, and in their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their offspring shall be known among the nations, and their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge them that they are an offspring of the Lord that excuse me that they are an offspring the Lord has blessed. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord, my soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation, he has covered me with a robe of righteousness, as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, And as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If you'll turn with me uh, to our New Testament reading and sermon text, Luke chapter 9, verses 51 to 62. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell a fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and he went on to another village. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. Let's pray. 
So Father, we turn now our attention from the book of Samuel and David and Saul uh, to consider again Jesus. Uh, to consider again his, his journey to Jerusalem, to consider again his crucifixion in our place, to consider again his death, his burial, his resurrection, and his ascension. I pray now that over the next few weeks, Lord, that you would cause us to be utterly preoccupied with questions about Jesus. You'd help us again to marvel at Jesus. You'd help us to be a people who who, um, are utterly preoccupied with the glory, the sovereignty, the severity, the kindness of Jesus. In your name we pray, amen. Um, I have become, have been for a while, but have become even more so uh, a pretty big fan of stand-up comedy. Um, I like stand-up comedy, and one of my least favorite things that happens during a stand-up routine um, is a comedian will tell a joke, and no one will laugh. It's both my favorite thing and my least favorite thing, because it's sometimes like a sermon. Tell a sermon, and everyone stares at you like you're crazy. Um, and so you can literally feel the tangible silence. I just watched a recently a special. It was done from Red Rocks. Uh, the comedian tells a joke, and it wasn't that, that no one, um, it, was, it wasn't just that the punchline wasn't funny. It was that the whole narrative, the whole story behind um, the, 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 the joke that he was telling, it was like completely... Uh, I mean, I'm sure the comedian liked to think it was just over everyone's heads. Um, I don't know if it was over everyone's heads, but, but nobody seemed to get it. In other words, um, the questions raised by the jokes um, weren't the questions that anyone was asking. The, the observation that the joke was making wasn't something that anyone had noticed. And, and I think that um, as we turn over the next few weeks to, to, to pay attention to the gospel of Luke, that we are encountering something like that in the, the basic understanding of what Christianity is. You see, we live in a world in which objective reality, objective truth, um, what is absolutely true and what is absolutely good and what is absolutely beautiful has been all but lost. But we live in a day and age in which the questions which drive the gospel writers are not the questions that almost anyone is asking in our culture. Our culture is obsessed with questions of happiness. It's obsessed with questions of self-fulfillment. In some cases, it's obsessed with pragmatic questions about, um, I don't know what's true or good or beautiful, but What can I do that will work for me? In other words, we we have a a culture that is spending, frankly, billions of dollars to always turn your attention inward on yourself. Such that any religious questions that exist are not questions about what is 
ultimately true, not questions about what is ultimately good and beautiful, and therefore you should order your whole life to those realities, but rather are questions that center on you and your own personal fulfillment, your own emotional fulfillment, um, or your own questions of what can I do simply to make things work. And in a culture obsessed with the self, in a culture obsessed with my own feelings, my own impressions, my own fulfillment, we we, we encounter the Gospels and we encounter a story that just doesn't care about any of those questions. Don't misunderstand me. Oh, it has answers to those questions but it answers those questions by refusing to answer those questions. It leads to a place of real fulfillment, of of real practical help on on how to do things in life like marriage and raising kids and work and money and all of the, the nitty gritty of life, but it brings those answers to bear by calling your attention away from yourself, away from your own fulfillment, away from your own feelings, away from your life altogether to fix your attention on the person and the work of Jesus. It screams at us, stop thinking about yourself. Stop obsessing about how you feel or what you should be. And simply look at the person of Jesus and marvel at him. Be scandalized by him. Be driven to your face in tears and joy and sadness and glory by him. It answers those questions by getting you distracted from those questions. And this is, quite frankly, what makes Christianity unique in the world. And why, if you've come here today, maybe you're not a Christian, maybe you haven't been in church in years, and you think, Easter's coming, I should get back in the practice. But whatever it is that brought you here, um, here's why Christianity should strike you as strange. It's not in the first place concerned with all the things you think you ought to be concerned with. Now, there are lots of preachers, there's lots of writers, there's lots of Christians um, that that will try to reframe Christianity such that it, it simply tries to, it is designed to make you feel better or make you feel more important. Um, I, I think there are fundamentally two different ways that we miss the plot of the gospel of Christianity. And there's lots of Christians that will help you miss the plot. In fact, our publishing industry is driven by it. But, but I want us over the next few weeks to pay attention to Luke. To not miss the plot anymore. And, and, and here's the two ways I think we miss the plot that I want to bring Luke to bear in confronting these two ways. We tend to politicize 
Jesus. And what I mean by that is we don't make him a Republican or a Democrat. What we tend to do with Jesus is we fit him into the predominant kind of ideological frameworks of our day. We take Jesus and we make him kind of a right-wing culture warrior. He exists to get everybody to live rightly. To, to, to do the right stuff. He is our warrior going to declare war and crush the crazy secularists. So we tend to situate Jesus as kind of like a, a, a better right-wing conservative. And when you do so, you've forgotten that Jesus Christ is Lord. That he came to die on a cross for the sins of the world. To be exalted to the right hand of the Father. That he bears all authority over everything, everywhere. But we also tend to make Jesus kind of like this um, king of empathy. He's just this loving, accepting. He's there to kind of reinforce all of your good feelings about yourself. He's here to accept you just as you are. You're so great. Jesus is here, the little guy on your shoulder, to tell you every day how awesome you are, just how you are. You have a great mustache. People like you. Ah, don't let all that body negativity. Your body is great. I need that Jesus a lot. This kind of empathetic, accepting, loving Jesus. Love, by the way, defined how our culture defines love, which is the avoidance of any unpleasant feelings. Um, that's the Jesus who's there, right? Like, so we have um, culture warrior Jesus who's there to kill all the bad people who are doing bad stuff. Um, and then we have the accepting, loving, kind Jesus who's there to make you feel good. Always to make you feel good. And yet this too forgets that Jesus Christ is Lord. That he came to die on the cross for the sins of the world. That he has been exalted to the right hand of the Father and bears all authority over all the nations of the earth. We miss the plot. We have nice hippie Jesus. We have general patent Jesus And in doing so, we miss Jesus. So for the next few weeks, we're going to listen to Luke. If only we weren't in 1 Samuel, then we could spend the next three years in Luke. Instead, we're going to spend the next three years in 1 Samuel with this short break. Why Luke? I think Luke is particularly instructive to us today. Um, You'll... If you were to turn over to chapter 1, you find that Luke is writing um, what went first. It's a two-part work. Um, There's all kinds of indications in the text itself um, that Luke and Acts would be read together. Um, It's like volume 1 and volume 2 of the work of Jesus. Um, And one follows closely the life, um, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And the next 
follows that the sending of the Spirit by Jesus upon his people and the sending of the gospel um, um, or the covenant promises of God to all the nations of the earth. And in chapter one, um, this uh, two-part work is being written to um, a man named Theophilus. Now, uh, there is good reason to think that Theophilus, um, even if he was a real man, if he is a real man, a single singular individual, um, he is kind of a representative um, of uh, uh, any and all of the nations. In other words, this book is targeting or being written to um, not primarily Jews like Matthew or John, but primarily to Gentiles, to Romans. Um, and Theophilus means um, the one who seeks wisdom, um, loves wisdom. Um, and so Luke is writing this book for anyone who seeks wisdom, for anyone who um, wants wisdom, um, particularly the wisdom of God. And so what we have here in Luke is a framework for the, God, for, for the story of Jesus. And all of the gospel writers tell the same Jesus, um, tell the same story about Jesus. They just frame it slightly differently, right? So you have Matthew telling the story of the Exodus, um, Matthew telling the story um, of the fulfillment of the promises of God given to Abraham. You have Mark, who's just in a hurry. Um, you have John, who's showing Jesus as the fulfillment of, of all uh, of the covenant promises and the feast days um, uh, of the Jewish people. Jesus as kind of the culmination of all of Jewish history, kind of meeting its end in Jesus. And Luke frames this um, for a Gentile audience, and therefore the questions driving the Gospel of Luke um, are... Uh, are are questions of ultimate reality, of what's fundamentally true about the universe. And one example of that is in the book of Matthew, you have a a genealogy of Jesus which goes back to Abraham. In Luke, you have a genealogy of Jesus that goes all the way back to Adam. Um, Luke, uh, multiple major commentators have said that, that Luke's predominant concern is to show how um, through the coming of Jesus and judgment coming against the Jews, now the gospel has gone out. The covenant promises of God uh, have gone out now to include all Jews and Gentiles who believe in Jesus. In fact, it is a, an utter recategorization of the whole world. Do you want to receive the covenant promises of God? It's not enough merely to be born Jewish. In fact, those who inherit the covenant promises of God are simply and only all those who believe in Christ. There is actually in a text um, right next to the text we're looking at today, um, Jesus sends his disciples out to the uh, various villages um, throughout Israel um, and uh, if they reject their message about Jesus, if they reject them, um, they are to treat that village, that city, like a Gentile city, a city that's unclean, a city that's under the judgment of God. So the questions Luke is asking are, are, are questions that are fundamental to reorganizing and re-understanding the nature of the world and our lives. So if you've come today and, and, and the question driving you to show up at church on a Sunday is, I hope Brian will say something to make me feel better. One, you don't know me very well. Shame on you. <laughs> but two, that, that's not what the Bible generally does 
It it fixes your attention somewhere else. Luke intends to do that. If you've come this morning and the predominant question driving your attendance at church this morning is, I hope the pastor will say something that will help me be a better businessman. I, I, I don't think the text, really anywhere in scripture, might be exceptions in Proverbs, but even then, I think we can be misled to think that Proverbs is about me. The text is driven by another set of questions altogether. Today we're going to look at Luke chapter 9 where two questions come to bear on us that are infinitely more important than how you feel or how you go to work tomorrow. Questions are, who is Jesus and what did Jesus come to do? Two questions that are obsessed with Jesus. And the answer to these questions is true regardless of how you feel about it. Regardless of if you think it happens to be helpful to you or not. They're just there. To to either order your life to and around and from or to your own peril to ignore. But the wonderful thing about Luke, which is an echo of the wonderful thing about God, is he says things and he doesn't ask you how you feel about it. He doesn't say something. And he sees CJ's face cringe and they go like, oh, did I say that wrong? Are you offended? Like that's the marvelous thing about God and the Bible is it just says stuff <laughs> and doesn't care what you think about it. No regard for how fulfilled you were by it or not. Just says true things. And so in the text today, we're going to look at the transfiguration and we're also going to look at this one verse, verse 51, what Jesus has done. What we see here is two stories about Jesus that are simply and absolutely true. And you can like it or not like it. God doesn't care. I mean, he does in the sense that bad things happen to those who don't like it. But not in the sense that he's going to adjust or kind of nuance what he says better so that you feel better about it. Are we okay with that? I don't care. (laughs) Okay, so here we go. I want to read for you Another passage of scripture that comes before the passage we were looking at. This is from Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9 functions as a hinge point in the whole narrative of Luke's gospel. In other words, it is, um, it's everything before chapter 9 has been leading up to 
this kind of revelation of Jesus and Jesus' own mission and purpose, which is unfolded for us explicitly in chapter 9. And then everything that happens after is a result of the resolve that is declared by Jesus in chapter 9. And so um, you have these two questions dominating this chapter. One, who is this Jesus? There have been hints at an answer to that question. There have been echoes of an answer to that question. Um, There's been comparisons made to Moses. There's been comparisons, wonderful comparisons made to Elijah, um, which is going to come up again in this text. Um, But but it's all been kind of, it's like shadow, like whispering in a corner, like, who is this guy? Like, what what is he doing? Like, who is he? What what kind of person is this? What, What what is he doing here? And, and now in chapter 9, there's just a bold declaration of who Jesus is. Listen to this story, which is and functions as that declaration. Starting in verse 28. If you have your Bibles, you should look at it. It's an amazing story. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered. And his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, his exodus, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, good old Peter, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses, one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. And as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. What is this story about? It is a glimpse, a moment in which the curtain is pulled away And for just a moment, we see Jesus. Not simply what he's coming to do and what he does, not not simply his purpose or his mission or his healings or his raising the deads or his ingenious teaching. We see for a moment a picture of his glory. And it is shocking. Listen to this quote from N.T. Wright speaking of the transfiguration and our inability to make sense of it. How can you live with the terrifying thought that the hurricane has become human? That fire has become flesh? That life itself came to life and walked in our midst? Christianity either means that or it means nothing. It is either the most 
devastating disclosure of the deepest reality in the world, or it's a sham, a nonsense, a bit of deceitful play-acting. Most of us, unable to cope with saying either of those things, condemn ourselves to live in the shallow world in between. What do we see in this text? Jesus takes a handful of disciples and they go up on a mountain. It's fascinating about the explicit comparisons that have been made thus far in Luke's gospel to Moses and Elijah is Moses and Elijah are two men from the Old Testament. Of all the other things we could say about them, um, they are two men that go up on a mountain to pray, to meet with God. Um, And so he takes John and James and Peter and they go up to on the mountain to pray. And then we have this odd strange description of what they see. It says the appearance of his face was altered or transfigured or changed. And then the ESV, which is a really lame lame translation here, says, and his clothing became dazzling white. As if what happened was they, they, they used the tide extra white and his robe, which was usually muddled a bit, became really nice, like really, really nice. No more stains. That's not the language here. The language here is actually the same language as lightning. So so it's like fire. So so the image here is not um, merely that Jesus' robe became like super white, super clean. The bleach really worked this time. And his face looked different. He looked happier. the, The image here is that a veil was torn back and what they saw as who Jesus was was lightning and fire. It was un- indescribable. It was glory. In fact, it has echoes in the book of Revelation chapter 4 where there is one who is seated on a throne and the only description we have is something like fire and color and sound, almost indescribable beauty and glory in unapproachable terror. That's the description of Jesus. He is transfigured, transformed in front of them such that he is something like lightning and fire and color and light. I I love Peter. Sees it. The text even says, Luke says, I mean, he didn't know what he's saying. Whatever they saw up there, the description of the text uses to describe what they saw was prior to seeing it, they were asleep and then they were awake. The result of seeing it was, it's like Peter just starts talking, not having any idea what he's saying. And then a voice comes to explain it all. This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And appearing with Jesus and talking with Jesus is Elijah and Moses. Here are two men that went up on mountains and spoke to God. In Luke's gospel, they go up on a mountain 
and they continue to speak to God. Who is Jesus? It seems like a strange thing to attach so much significance to a question like that. There is not a more important question in all of history. It's not a more important question in your life than that question, who is Jesus? He's God. The sovereign one, the glorious one, the son of God sent to bear witness, to embody the very life of God in the world, the chosen one, the one whose voice we must listen to, uh, the one who, if you saw him, um, the, the only, uh, only way the text knows how to describe it is you went from a state of death and sleep to a state of life and wakefulness. There is, um, there is one answer to this question. He is God. He is Lord. He has all authority. Um, everything that is, he made it. He created it. He sustains it. So the first question, who is Jesus? He's the one to whom Moses and Elijah went up the mountain to speak to. He's the one that if you saw him, you, you just mutter nonsensical words and you would be utterly undone by the sheer weight and glory of fire and lightning and sound and color. He is the one of whom the Father declares, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. What did Jesus come to do? Verse 51 is the kind of the, if you don't know the dead center of this book, it's verse 51. There's been this declaration, this revelation of who Jesus is. Now to the disciples, here is God Almighty come in the flesh. Then in verse 51, um, which it's interesting, even the flow of the text after the revelation of Christ is um, this constant juxtaposition that that Luke wants to pull us into of um, Jesus is revealed in all of his glory and then two, immediately tells everyone he's going to die and then three, the disciples start arguing about who is the best. <laughs> like, you just saw glory. That glory has just said something scandalous to you. He's going to be delivered over to die. And what's the topic of conversation? I'm better than you. <laughs> Luke is kind in that he likes to tell us how dense the disciples were, which is often revelation of how dense we are. 
to go through all of that, and then you get to verse 51. And when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Here is the God of all the universe, the, the, the Son of the living God, the Son of the Father. Um, here is the one who speaks with the kind of authority that all men must listen to, all men must bow to. Here is the one who bears all authority, who is filled with glory and power and majesty, and he sets his face to go to Jerusalem. The the language here is interesting, and a number of scholars have pointed out that the language here, and even the way that that Luke has framed everything, is this is uh, this seems to echo kind of Greek heroic language. Um, Here is a kind of resolve, um, a kind of resolve to go to this place to conquer it, to 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 vanquish his enemies. Here um, is uh, this picture of this Jesus, this um, almost Greek hero-like figure um, coming to conquer his enemies, um, to establish his throne and yet he has told us again and again and again that he goes to Jerusalem to die this is the scandal of who Jesus is and what Jesus has come to do here is glory and fire and lightning the one that God himself commands us to listen to and he sets his face to Jerusalem to go and die for your sins and for my sins and for our neighbor's sins. Oh, don't fit Jesus into your, into your neat little modern ideological categories. Oh, don't fit Jesus into your um, a constant selfish obsession with who you are and how you can be realized and how everyone can think about how great you are. No, fit Jesus um, here where he's placed in the scriptures. Um, he is glory and beauty and majesty and you and I are nothing compared to that and he comes to die for you and I. Oh, be done with yourself. Be done with your self-obsession. Be done with um, constantly needling over how you feel and what you think and instead see here glory and beauty and goodness and the atonement for your sins. Wake up like Peter James and John see him for who he is and what he's come to do. Let's pray and prepare for communion.